Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles? I trust you brought them to John chapter 11. We're back in the Gospel of John. We've been doing a series called Believe, as you can see behind me with the banner. It is up there today. Believe 879. 879 verses in the Gospel of John. The grand theme is that we would believe. And uh, also in the text we're about to read, that same thought is very prevalent. So we're in John chapter 11 this morning. Let's begin again with a word of prayer. Father, as we have worshipped you with our mouths, we want to worship you now with our ears. We remember that James said that we ought to be slow to speak and swift to hear. And so as we listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, as our ears grasp the words, I pray that the very core of us, our very hearts, will apprehend the meaning and rejoice in the application. We pray that you would mold us and shape us and hone us and make us fit for the kingdom of God. Thank you that we're saved by grace, but thank you, Lord, that you are committed to the working and the perfection of your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you about Alan. He was a motorcycle mechanic. One day he was working on a Harley Davidson pulling out a piston. And he looked up and he saw on the other side of the shop a pretty famous heart surgeon. He was renowned. He was, he was well known in the community. The surgeon had brought his motorcycle in to get somebody to look at it in the shop. Alan said, hey doc, can I ask you a question? So the heart surgeon made his way toward Alan. Alan got up, wiped his hands with a rag and said, doc, look at this engine. This is the heart of this motorcycle. And he said, Doc, I too open hearts. I take valves out and fix them. I I replace old parts with new parts. And when I'm done, Doc, this motorcycle will be like brand new. So as I see it, Doc, you and I do the same work. But why is it that I make so little money and you make the big bucks? Doctor smiled, thought about it, leaned over to Alan and said, Try doing it with the engine running. (laughs) Big difference between working on a motorcycle that isn't running and a human being that is. There's probably few people you trust more than your doctor. You trust that he or she will make a correct assessment of your physical stature, nature, constitution, that they'll know what to do if something goes wrong. In the Bible, Jesus himself pictured himself as a physician, a doctor. In Mark chapter 2, when people were criticizing him for hanging out with the wrong crowd, he said to them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call sinners, not those who think they are already good enough. Jesus was the great physician. In fact, Jesus was the master physician. With a 100% success ratio, without the help of 
anesthetics, antiseptics, chemotherapy, surgical suites, drugs. He cured a variety of people. Here's an example. In Luke 5, he was a dermatologist. Somebody with the dreaded disease of leprosy, untouchable. Jesus touched him and healed him. In Luke 13, he was an orthopedist. A woman bent over. Her stature was out of shape for 18 years. And the Bible says she was loosed from her infirmity. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus was a hematologist. A woman had an issue of blood or a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. In fact, the Bible says she suffered many things from doctors and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. In John chapter 4, Jesus played the role of a pediatrician as he healed the son of a nobleman who was at Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 8, he played the role of a neurologist. A centurion servant had what the Bible calls a palsy, a disorder of the central nervous system that eventuates in paralysis, cured 100% by Christ. In John chapter 9, he was an ophthalmologist. As a man born blind was healed by Christ, and he did it in very unconventional means medically, right? He took a mud ball and spat on it and put a spit in the mud in the guy's eye, and he said, now go wash yourself, and the man was cured. And here in chapter 11, we'll see that he is a post-mortem resuscitative specialist. (laughs) Lazarus, by the time Jesus gets a hold of him, has been dead for four full days. And Jesus will resurrect him from the grave. But, not so fast, the setup, the introduction toward the miracle, tells us a different story. Here we find Dr. Jesus with all power and all ability to heal every disease who has at many times healed complete strangers lets his friend Lazarus die. In chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we transition off of the public ministry of Jesus and onto what we call the private ministry. It's where he turns from the crowd. He's done with the nation. They have rejected him. He leaves them. And for the next few months before his crucifixion, he concentrates on private ministry. He is secluded within his own group, the disciples, as he trains them. Something else to make note of, the timing In chapter 10 of John, it was the winter time. The Feast of Dedication takes place in the dead of winter. Chapter 12 is the Passover already. That's the springtime. So somewhere in between the winter time and the springtime, the resurrection of Lazarus takes place. I want you to think of something remarkable. We're really at just the midpoint of this book. We've been in it for a long time. We're at the midpoint. In chapter 12, we're already at the Passover at which Jesus Christ was killed. Don't you think it's remarkable that John spent as much time on the 48 hours, the last 48 hours of Jesus' life, as he did the first 33 years of his life? Because to John and Mark and Matthew, all the gospel writers, the most important event that Jesus did was his sacrificial death on the cross. Hence, the lion's share of the focus is upon that event. 
And he slows down as he moves toward the cross. There's a few principles I want to note with you this morning in our verses, verses 1 through 16. And here's the first one. Jesus' friends get sick. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, it seems that this family was pretty well known to John's readers, just the way he positions and introduces them. He says, now, there was a man, a certain man who was sick. And so the readers would want more information. Well, his name was Lazarus. Well, that didn't really help because a lot of people were named Lazarus. It's the Hebrew shortened form of the name Eleazar. And so John says, oh, that's the brother of Mary and Martha. And if you don't know who they are, it's the Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. And since John was the last of the four Gospels written, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were spoken about in the other Gospels, plus everybody by now knew who Lazarus was. He's the guy that got raised from the dead. So they knew the readers. They understood now who he was talking about. And he continues, verse 3, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were close friends of Jesus, almost like family. If ever there was a home away from home, It was the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha that was that for Jesus. They lived in Bethany. Bethany is about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You can walk to it. And Jesus spent a lot of his time there. And now, his good friend, Lazarus, is sick. And the word sick indicates a disease of deterioration leading to death. And when it got to critical mass and it was tending toward death, they immediately thought, we got to summon the great physician. we got to call on Jesus. There's only one person we need to get, and that is Christ. I love their appeal. I think it's simple, and it has no instructions in it. Notice it says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, notice the basis of their appeal. They don't say, Lord, you know, you've stayed at our house a lot. And the food you ate was our food. And the bed you slept in, those were our sheets. And uh, you've hung out there quite a bit, so we kind of think you owe us one. None of that manipulation. Nor did they say, you know, Lord, Lazarus really loves you, and Lazarus really served you. That'd be bribery. It wasn't on the basis of their love for Christ or Lazarus' service of Christ. They appealed to Jesus on the basis of his love for them. Not that they didn't love him. Of course they did. But his love for them was so much greater. It's a beautiful appeal. They just state the need and they don't tell Jesus what to do. That's a good prayer. A lot of times we say, Lord, we had a problem and here's how you ought to fix it. They didn't do that. Lord, all you need to know is the one that you love and Jesus knew who that was. It was Lazarus is sick. They took refuge in 
Jesus' love for them. Now, it's worth noting the word love that they used is the word phileo. We get the term Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philanthropy, philanthropic, comes from this Greek term phileo. It means brotherly love, close brotherly affection, friendship, love. So they're saying, Lord, your close pal, whom you have a deep friendship with, the one you love like a brother, is sick. Now, could it be, here's a thought, could it be that Mary and Martha, like so many of us, were actually surprised that somebody that Jesus loved that much could get that sick? It could be. In fact, there's a hint of that in the word behold. Notice how it's written. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Like, Lord, look, wow, this guy really loves you and you really love him and he's really, really sick. Typically, we get surprised when sickness comes. I don't know why we do, but we do. When sickness comes to Christians, we kind of think, wow. I mean, Lord, what kind of love is this? If you really loved me, why would you allow this to happen to me? But it really shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised Mary and Martha. It shouldn't surprise us for this reason. Number one, because the man that Jesus loves is still a man. And ever since the fall of man in the garden, there has been... In all of nature, a constant entropy and deterioration. It's part of the fall. Jesus said the sun falls on the just and the unjust, and the rain pours on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Ever since the very beginning, from the fall of humanity, there has been a deterioration, and people get sick and they die. Walter Martin, a great apologist years ago, who came every now and then to this church, one of the many things he said that I smiled at, was everyone dies of his last disease. I know it sounds very simple, but it's so profound. Something's going to get you. Everybody dies. Everybody gets sick. Job, chapter 5, verse 7, writes, Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. That's what Job said, even though certain people in the last 20 years have developed a faith movement that says, if you're really Jesus' friend, you won't get sick. Well, you've got a real problem here because Lazarus, Jesus really loved, and there's no evidence of gross sin in his life or anything wrong, and yet he is very, very sick. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached on this very text that I'm speaking on, and in his sermon he said this, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from disease. So it shouldn't surprise us because the man Jesus loves or the woman Jesus loves is still human. Second, it shouldn't surprise us because God uses sickness for our benefit. Did you know that? I have talked to people, I can't even count how many times I have over the years, who have told me, you know, I knew God and I knew my Bible, but when when this horrible thing entered my life and and I didn't want it, I, I didn't relish it, I wish it would have gone away, and yet, 
The intimacy I have discovered with my Lord, the resources I have found, my Bible has never come alive like it has now. You know, that happened to David. David wrote in Psalm 119, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Sickness helped David understand his Bible like never before. There's a third benefit, and that is it is used by God for the good of others. When you go through a time of suffering and others look at you, and they will, and they will scrutinize and they will see how you're doing with it, it can actually be for their benefit. Now watch this. Go down to verse 14. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. What happened to Lazarus in his illness and subsequent death did more to further the faith of the disciples than just about anything else. What they're about to see in the suffering and death of Jesus' friend bolstered their faith. Have you ever thought about it this way? That you and I are on display And have you ever just taken this thought and applied it? That suffering believers are one of the ways God uses to let the world know that He's real. When they see us suffering like they suffer, but in grace and in trust and in humility and in belief that God has a greater plan, they will take a double take at our faith. They will consider deeply what we believe. Verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, he's not saying Lazarus won't die, because he eventually says, Let me, guys, let me tell you, you're not getting it. He's dead. But what he means is that ultimately, death won't be the outcome. It will be life. But the greater point is that sickness and even death may sometimes be God's will for his children, for his people, for his friends. So, number one, Jesus' friends get sick. Number two, as we follow the story, Jesus' foresight gets seen. As we make our way through the story, we get the strong indication that Jesus not only knows what is happening, he knows when Lazarus is dead, past the point of sickness, and he's not even close to him geographically. But also he has everything in perfect control. He's monitoring everything, and the timing is just right. So watch this, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. You'll notice that rather than rushing to the side of Lazarus and rushing to Mary and Martha, that Jesus waits Now I want you to notice this. Look at it again. Look at those verses. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see the word love there? It's different than what the sisters sent in the note or the messenger. They said, the one whom you love, phileo, brotherly love, he's sick. Now John, the author, writes his own commentary, his own note. And he states, so we might know, now Jesus really loved them. And the word he uses is agape, agapao. That's the divine love. That's the total love. That's the complete love. And then 
It's followed by the word so or therefore. So let me read it to you as it should be understood. Jesus loved them with a complete, unending, ongoing love, and so he stayed two more days. In other words, Jesus' delay was directly connected to his love for his friends. I know, I know you're thinking, what kind of love is that? Somebody's sick, and so I really love you. I'm not coming. I'm going to stay Tell he's dead. How can this be? I mean, shouldn't it read something like, Jesus really loved them, so he immediately ran out and stood by their side. Didn't say that. He stayed two more days, and he arrived, get this, four full days after Lazarus had been buried in the tomb because he loved them. If you have ever experienced God's delays in your life, I want you to listen carefully. Let me rephrase that. If you've ever experienced what you perceive to be God's delays, I want you to listen. God's delays are the delays of love. The motivation is love. In fact, let me say it this way. God's delays are not God's denials. And when God delays or we perceive it as a delay, it doesn't prove that he's not on time. It just proves that you're not on time. We go, God, you're late. No, you're just way early. You see, he wants to dress up his gifts, his packages, and he takes enough time, takes all the time needed to dress up his package, his gift the right way before he presents it. He has the right time to give it. His delays are not his denials. You see, the thing is, you don't know the big picture. He knows the big picture. He has the foresight. He knows what should happen. They want a resuscitation. That's all they want. Make him better. Jesus wants a resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 55, God declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So just understand that when things happen, when life happens, when stuff happens, God's got the big picture. You don't. The other night I was channel surfing, and I'm I'm not really good at landing on a program that gets my attention very long. And especially if there's, um, if I'm watching the news and there's a commercial, I'll I'll just start to bing, 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 and go back up the other way, bing, 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 and then bing, 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 and then by that time the commercial's over. And uh, something caught my attention. It was an artist. And what caught my attention is um, this guy was, he just sort of looked like a throwback from the 70s. He had this hairdo and these clothes. And I thought, this is weird. I got to see what this is about. Well, he was an artist. He was drawing a painting. And I, I watched. It was the beginning of his work. And honestly, there was just a few blotches on the canvas and a few lines and a few markings. And I looked at that and I thought, that's not very good. <laughs> it's not. In fact, I thought, I can do that. And boy, was I wrong as I kept watching. As I kept watching, what were blotches and lines and markings took shape and took form and became trees and a lake and sunlight filtering through the leaves and striking objects and just different patterns and leaves with colors and eventually the whole picture. And I discovered that artist had that picture in his mind when he started. He had the big picture. I only saw the beginning portion of it. 
I didn't see the big picture. And from an outside observer who didn't get it, I didn't get it because I didn't get the picture that the artist got from the beginning. Same in in our lives with our circumstances. You look at something that happens to you or God allows to come into your life and to you it's a big blotch and a big mark and a smudge and you look at it and go, that's not very good, I can do that. You made a mess of my life, God, I can do that. But wait for it, wait for it, wait for it and at some point... Voila, you might just get what he sees from the beginning. It's the handiwork of God. God's delays are not God's denials. He sees the end from the beginning. We can't. So, what does a delay do? What good, what possible good could a delay, what we would call a delay, we ask for something, we pray for something, we believe for something, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. What, what, what possible good could come out of that? I'm glad you asked that question. There's two things, actually. Number one, delays mold our errant wills to conform to His perfect will. Let me say that again. Delays conform or mold Delays mold our errant wills to conform to his perfect will. You want to jot that down. Here's an example. Do you know how long it should have taken the children of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt? Do you know how long the trip was from Egypt to Canaan? 11 days. They could have made it in 11 days. They got up the coast. It's a direct route. You know how long it took them? 40 years. They wandered around for 40 years. God let them wander in the desert for 40 years. And they complained and like every 10 minutes they got good they were like complaining they had turned into an art form and so god needed time and he took 40 years to crush their errant will to conform to his perfect will so that by the time they got into the land they were ready number two delays build faith have you ever thought about this that your faith wouldn't grow if every time you needed something and wanted something and prayed for something and demanded something, it came at that time. You'd just be a, special, a petulant, spoiled child. I claim it, I demand it in Jesus' name. If that happened, okay, yeah, here, go, you did it, I'll, here, go, I owe it to you. You wouldn't grow at all. So God delays things so that your faith might grow. Case in point, Abraham. That guy waited, didn't he? Remember, God promised Abram, was his original name, Abram. He said, Abram, you're going to have a son. Right? That was a promise. What happened after the promise? Nothing. He got older and older and really old and really, really, really old. I mean, how many of you think 100 is really, really, really old? I do. And when he was almost 100, 99 years of age, he has a son. Now, during the time of that delay, that waiting, did Abraham's faith diminish? Did he just become burdened and burnt out and hardened and walk away? Or did his faith actually grow? It grew. God built his faith. So, here's the lesson. So important. Learn to interpret your circumstances by the love of Christ rather than interpreting the love of Christ by your circumstances. If you get that reversed, 
what will happen is you'll never understand your circumstances and you'll always doubt God's love. You'll never understand your circumstances. You'll always doubt God's love. And that is what we so often do. Jesus didn't love me very much because I prayed for that a long time. It didn't come. Instead of interpreting your circumstances by Christ's love, you've interpreted His love by your circumstances. So, they prayed and they said, your friend is sick and you love him. And so Jesus really, really loved them, so he didn't come. He stayed two full days. And then in verse 7, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus' friends get sick. Jesus' foresight gets seen. And here's the third, and we'll close with this. Jesus' followers get schooled. And part of this process, Jesus is, as I mentioned, he's not doing public ministry. This is private ministry. He wants to train these guys. He's going to set them loose on a world and say, go out and preach the gospel to every living creature. They need to be ready and their faith needs to grow. Now, I don't know how you've seen the apostles in your mind. Some people think the apostles sort of glowed, emitted a kind of a light wherever they went. I mean, they had halos. All the pictures show them that way. Halos wherever they go. Now, these guys so often weren't spiritual and were even rude. You know, if a PR firm were to have selected the best earthly representatives and helpers to surround the Son of God for his initial contact with humanity, these guys wouldn't show up on the radar screen. But Jesus picked them. It's as if he went out of his way to pick the least likely and most incompatible On the same team, the same apostles, the same disciples, there's a tax collector. Everybody hated them. Matthew was a tax collector. And a zealot. Simon was a zealot. Zealots typically murdered tax collectors. It would be like having Osama bin Laden and George W. Bush on the same team. (laughs) Not a good strategy. Jesus picked them. I was looking through my annual this week and I was looking uh, at my high school picture and other people that I knew high school picture and remembering a whole other world so long ago. And I came to the page where it was most athletic, best dressed, most likely to succeed, best all around. I was in none of those categories, by the way. And I I, I looked at Scott Zalaha and Jan Webster's picture, most likely to succeed. Then I thought about these disciples and I thought if they had a high school annual, most of them would be in the category... Most unlikely to succeed. Jesus picked them. After a night of prayer, he chose this rough group of people. And notice how enthused they are about following Jesus up to Judea. When in verse 7, Jesus says, let's go again to Judea. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And you want to go there again? See, they're not too crazy about the idea of going with Jesus to Judea because it's a physical threat. They remember John chapter 10 when they took up stones to kill him. They were there. They remember it. Besides that, they knew something about Jesus. Did Jesus have to physically travel to get a job done? Did he have to physically travel to heal somebody? No, because they were there in John chapter 4 when Jesus said to the nobleman whose son was like 15, 20 miles away, go away, your son's alive. Jesus performed a long-distance miracle from Cana to Capernaum. 
He wasn't even there. So disciples are thinking, why should we go to Judea? They want to kill you. All you got to do is say some spiritual stuff and he'll be fine and we'll live here. They weren't very enthused. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does that mean? It was a common Jewish example. The Jewish calendar divided up every day into two 12-hour segments. And the first segment was the segment of daylight. Actually, it was from night and then morning. But the the daylight hours, the typical 12 hours of daylight, were the hours the people worked. You didn't work when it was night because you can't see at night. You stumble into things. But during the day, you don't stumble. You get your work done. So while it's day, you do your work, and it's got to get done by the daytime because at night, you don't work. The daylight, the sunlight, represents Jesus' earthly life as prescribed by the Father in heaven. The night typifies the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So the disciples are concerned. Well, let's not go up there again. They want to kill you. What Jesus is saying is, I have a work that the Father has for me to do while it's daylight. Your concern for me isn't going to add another hour or day to my life. And their threats and desire to kill me isn't going to take it away. I am invincible until I finish the work the Father has for me. And when the night comes, it's over. That's how he answers it. There's a great thought here, by the way. Do you know that you're invincible until God's done with you? You can walk into danger and to threatening situations, and as a believer, you are absolutely invincible until the moment God is done with you and your prescribed work plan, and it's time for you to go. Now, what throws us off is we think that our work plan should continue till we're 120. When people die younger, something happens, we think, oh my goodness, and God is saying, I'm done. And honestly, as a believer, when I'm done, I don't want to hang around here. When the night has come and I I can go home, I want to. But you're invincible until your work is done. None can thwart that. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them. Now, why does John write that? Because Jesus speaks and then Jesus speaks. I think Jesus spoke... And then he waited, and he let what he said just sort of sink in. And after it sunk in, these things he said, and after he said that to him, he said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. In other words, if he's sick... That's what they're presuming. He saw. If he's sick and he's asleep, that's a good thing. When people get sick, they ought to rest. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I want you to know that Jesus wasn't speaking about some kind of soul sleep, some dormant state that happens when a person dies and Unfortunately, there are those who call themselves believers who say that when a believer dies, they go into soul sleep. They're dormant. They just, nothing happens. No consciousness whatsoever until the resurrection. That's not true. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. 
Paul said, I have a desire to leave, depart this earth and be with Christ, which is far better. What Jesus is speaking about when he says he's asleep was a euphemism, a metaphor, an analogy of death. When a person dies physically, they give the appearance that they're asleep. But more than that, sleep is temporary. If a person is asleep, they will what? Wake up. And a person who's a believer is dead, he will wake up. There'll be a resurrection. Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. That's what physical resurrection is. He awakens them from the dead. So that's what he means when he says he's... I remember when I was a kid, and my mom used to say, it's, it's nap time. I hated nap time. It was like a punishment. What did I do wrong? You need to take a nap. Now, as I've grown older... A nap? Did somebody say a nap? I get to take a nap? It's a reward. My point is that as a Christian, you don't need to fear death any more than you need to fear a nap. You go to sleep, you will wake up. Now I want you to notice something in verse 14 and verse 15. Because you know in those days there weren't verses. Jesus didn't say, now verse 14... And now that I'm done with that, verse 15, he just, this is his conversation. People added that years later. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. Stop. Don't those words form a striking expression? Jesus announcing the death of somebody he loves and saying, I am glad. Lazarus is death and I am glad. We don't expect Jesus to say that. What we expect is Jesus to say something like, Lazarus is dead and I am sad. Or, Lazarus is physically sleeping and I am glad. Because it means he's going to wake up. Why would Jesus say, Lazarus is dead, I am glad? I can think of three reasons. There's really one reason in the text, but I can think of three reasons. Number one, Lazarus was a believer and Jesus understood what the death of a believer meant. You know, the the Bible says in the Old Testament, precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. When a saint that he has taken care of on earth finally gets to come home to, to heaven, God rejoices in that. He's home. She's home with me. I can now pamper that person and, and, and bless that person eternally in a way I could never do it on earth. Number two, because Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He was glad about that. That's what verse 11 implies. He's asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Number three, he was glad because he knew what it would do to the disciples. And that's the point when he said, Lazarus is dead. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus knew that when these disciples, who believed already, would see a resurrection from the dead of Lazarus after four days, four days of being in the grave, their faith would move forward in leaps and bounds. Not only that, Mary and Martha, whose heart was broken at the death of their brother, their faith would move ahead leaps and bounds. Not only that, there were unbelievers who were watching this event or hearing of it who didn't have any faith in Christ at all who would come to faith because of it. No wonder Jesus said, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe. 
And he says, let's go. Well, verse 8 are the disciples. And everything we've read so far is Jesus and the disciples, plural, the group. Now, John wants us to know about one disciple, one we all know about. His name is Thomas. Verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Love to have him on your team, wouldn't you? What is Thomas known for, typically? Doubt. And what do we call a pessimist? A doubting Thomas. As if Thomas is the patron saint of all skeptics. You know, and he's sort of been cast that way, right? He's, got, he's sort of been cast. And, and I'll admit, what he says here, um, it's not a happy thing, he said. It's not a positive statement. It's, it's the dark side of truth. One thing about Thomas, he always saw the darker underbelly of situations. I think if this were a Winnie the Pooh cartoon, uh, he would be Eeyore. That's Thomas. Let's go to Judea that we may die with him. He would just, he fits that role so perfect. But here's what I want you to see. These are not words of doubt. These are words of love. These are words of faithfulness. These are words of loyalty. These are words of courage. Nobody else wants to go. Ah, Lord, uh, why do we have to go? They want to kill you. Thomas goes, let's go. Don't let him die alone. He predicted his death. Let's go and die with him. These are words of courageous loyalty. You know, a lot of times we want to knock Thomas's faith, but we can't even match his love. A lot of us can't even live for Christ. He says, I'm willing to die for him. That's loyalty. That's faithfulness. Something else about Thomas. You know what I love about Thomas? And I think we need to get this because we're going to get into the doubting part later on. Um, Thomas was honest. He wasn't the kind to wear a mask and just say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Everyone, everybody think I'm spiritual. He was honest. And in, in um, John 14, the upper room, and I say it now because John 14, we could be five years before we get to that. In the upper room, Jesus gets his disciples around him and he says these words, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. One guy piped up. His name was Thomas. Thomas said, excuse me. We don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And I think the other disciples are sort of listening to Jesus, kind of nodding their heads, going, yeah, amen, yeah, that's good, having no idea what he means at all. Thomas was going, I don't get it, don't know where you're going, how can I know the way? I admire that. And I'm glad he brought that up, because that's when Jesus said one of the most famous things ever, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So I like Thomas. Honest. That's the end of this paragraph. Verse 17 that we'll pick up next time shows the next event. Now, Jesus, the great physician, takes his interns, goes up to Judea, and performs a miracle, a work 
that is greater than anything ever. And although doctors are able to fix people while the engine is running, Lazarus' engine stops running. He's been dead for four days, and Jesus does what no doctor could ever do after four days, resurrects that body and gives it full life. But in the meantime, in the meantime, that's what we're dealing with this morning. In the meantime, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, gets sick and sicker and dies, and Mary and Martha's heart gets broken because Jesus didn't answer their prayer the way they wanted. And it's all because Jesus loved them so. Ruth Graham, who was the wife of Billy Graham, used to say on many occasions, in fact, I asked her about this personally at her house years ago. She said, If God had answered every prayer of mine, I would have married the wrong man seven times. She saw a guy and she wanted to marry him. She saw another guy and God said, no, 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 no. That's seven. I counted. (laughs) One day she saw Billy. She prayed again and God said, yep, that's a one. And so she said, I'm glad God didn't answer all my prayers. And the truth is God always answers your prayers, Christian. Sometimes the answer is no. That's an answer. More often it's, Not yet, not now. Wait. Well, that's a delay. No, it's not. It's perfect time. Wait for it. Wait for it. You'll see. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.